It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. But what about those small business masterminds who succeed at making their money work harder? They do that by having a business bank account with QuickBooks Money which now earns 5% annual percentage yield. Making your money work as hard as you do, that's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. De-radicalizing the extremists. Parents for Peace enlists ex-believers to help families win back loved ones drawn to Islamism, QAnon, and other ideologies. Demand has never been higher. By David Yaffe Bellany and Sophia Kai One morning in November 2018, Amy awoke before dawn to the sound of pounding on her front door. Clad in a t-shirt and underwear, she leaped from bed and rushed outside with her husband, On the front steps stood three FBI agents. Behind them were several others, armed with guns. The agents pulled Amy and her husband away from the house and ordered them to stand underneath a raised deck that overlooks the front yard. They'd come for the couple's teenage son. Jack had been diagnosed with autism at age three, and like many children on the spectrum, he was prone to obsessions. He loved learning about snakes and tried to catch them whenever he could. His parents were protective, They limited his access to the internet and wouldn't let him play violent video games. But in seventh grade, a group of classmates had started showing Jack videos of Islamic State fighters beheading prisoners, and the clips piqued his interest. Soon he grew fascinated with radical Islam. He purchased a copy of the Koran and asked his teacher to find a place for him to pray. He found more videos online and used material from Amy's sewing kit to make an IS flag. Amy and Jack are pseudonyms. The family asked to remain anonymous to protect its privacy. At the time of the FBI raid on their home in the southern U.S., Jack was 16, but he operated at the developmental level of someone years younger and had trouble understanding complex emotions. He saw the world in black and white, which seemed to explain his attraction to extremist ideas. Although Amy was worried, the family was Christian, and she couldn't understand why her son was obsessed with radical Islam, Jack's therapist dismissed his interest in jihad as a phase. But neither Jack's parents nor his doctors were aware of just how radicalized he'd become. In violent messages posted to online chat rooms, he was threatening an assault on the White House and the Washington Monument. We are planning for guns and body armor, he'd written a few days before the FBI showed up. It will take years of preparation. The FBI found little during the raid to suggest that Jack was capable of launching a terrorist attack, according to a report later filed in court. No bomb-making kits, no secret trove of weapons, only some matches he'd filed down, possibly for use as an incendiary device. He was just talking big online, Amy says, like a big tough jihadi or whatever he thought he was. Jack was charged in juvenile court with making terrorist threats against the federal government and tampering with evidence because he'd deleted a chat app from his phone when the FBI arrived at the house. A judge sentenced him to a year of probation. But the legal consequences did little to diminish his commitment to radical Islam. 
After all, he considered the U.S. government a force for evil. Amy sent Jack to a residential school for children with behavioral issues and introduced him to new doctors and therapists. At times, Jack seemed to express remorse. I should have stayed with the good Muslims online, he wrote in a journal in late 2018. Why did I choose the bad ones? Before long, though, he'd drift back into extremism. Answer the call, he wrote in another journal a year later. Kill them all. It is now time to rise. Slit their throats. Watch them die. Amy felt helpless and overwhelmed. Memories of the early morning raid haunted her. Over and over she asked herself, Where do I go? Who do I call to get this taken out of his head? Years earlier, Melvin Bledsoe had wondered the same thing. His son, Carlos, once a bright, happy-go-lucky hip-hop fan, had fallen in with Islamic radicals as a college student in Tennessee. He'd dropped out of school and moved to Yemen before returning to the U.S. to help his father expand the family's regional tour bus business into Arkansas. One spring day in 2009, Bledsoe set out for Memphis to Little Rock to look for Carlos, who hadn't been answering his phone. As he sped west on the highway, Bledsoe got a call from an FBI agent. Carlos had shot and killed a soldier at a U.S. military recruiting office in Little Rock. I felt my heart drop to my shoes, Bledsoe says. It was the most difficult thing in the world to pull that car over and to tell my wife what this agent just told me. Carlos was sentenced to life in prison. As the family struggled with a mixture of anger and grief, Bledsoe kept returning to a tantalizing hypothetical. What if he'd found someone to help Carlos before it was too late? We didn't know where to turn, he says. We had no help. In 2015, Bledsoe founded Parents for Peace, a nonprofit that specializes in de-radicalizing people who are drawn to extremist ideas, from jihad to QAnon. The group's services have never been in greater demand. During the pandemic, Parents for Peace has seen a threefold increase in calls to its national hotline. MSNBC aired a short segment on the nonprofit in April, leading to a burst of 25 calls in four days. Researchers at Harvard and Boston University are studying its methods as academics, therapists, and social workers nationwide grapple with combating extremism in an increasingly polarized political environment. Much of that work has focused on identifying and combating the roots of extremism in the Internet age, such as the misinformation proliferating on social media. But Parents for Peace is focusing on a narrower, more pragmatic question. How to respond when a loved one subscribes to a radical ideology? We're not well equipped to know what to do if a person walks in with this kind of a problem, says Ellen DeVoe, a social work expert at Boston University who's been observing Parents for Peace. They're absolutely on to something. Run by a five-person staff and a rotating cast of volunteers, the organization has refined a treatment approach that sits somewhere at the intersection of family counseling, addiction recovery, traditional therapy, and cult deprogramming. Five years ago, Bledsoe handed control of Parents for Peace to Miriam Churchill, a fast-talking French-Moroccan whose history in social work dates to the 1980s, when she counseled prostitutes in Marseille. To develop a treatment strategy, she conducted interviews with former extremists and the families of radicalized people. Partly, she realized, she needed to find a way to talk about extremism that didn't stigmatize families wrestling with it. As parents, we all make mistakes, she says. 
I started really kind of building compassion, being less judgmental. These days, Churchill spends hours on the phone each week with extremists' parents or siblings. She often repeats the same deceptively simple-sounding instructions. Never argue with extremists. Ask them probing, open-ended questions. Treat them with respect, not derision. And work on your own problems. Sometimes the key to helping a family member is addressing the household's broader dysfunction. In these conversations, Churchill compares extremism to an addiction. Like an alcoholic reaching for a bottle of liquor, she says, an extremist turns to internet conspiracy theories or violent hate speech to numb a deeper pain. Often she's found that young people become susceptible to radicalization as a result of underlying social anxieties, loneliness, or past traumas. A developmental disability such as autism can make children desperate for a sense of belonging, she points out, leaving them vulnerable to predatory recruitment. Extremism becomes the drug of choice, Churchill says. It's really trying to find a way to be somebody, to have control. That notion is the subject of a growing body of academic research. A 2017 study by a group of sociologists found that extremists who disengage from white supremacy experience substantial lingering effects that some of them compare to addiction. But the research remains preliminary. It's still very, very early in the identification of the problem, says Andrew Dreyfus, the chief executive officer of Blue Cross Blue Shield of Massachusetts and an advisor to Parents for Peace. This is where we were with opioid addiction 10 to 15 years ago. Since its founding, Parents for Peace has worked with about 300 families, and Churchill is courting donors and seeking government funding in a bid to expand. The group tries to remain apolitical, counseling people drawn to environmental terrorism and left-wing violence, as well as white supremacists and QAnon adherents. In the most complex cases, Churchill deploys a team of former extremists to mentor radicalized people and encourage them to disengage from hate groups. One of those ex-extremists is Chris Buckley, a 38-year-old veteran of the war in Afghanistan and a former Ku Klux Klan leader. In the mid-2010s, Buckley was such a committed white supremacist that he brought his four-year-old son along to a Klan rally, dressing the child in a miniature robe and hood. The Klan became an outlet for Buckley's pent-up anger and an easy way to service his addiction to narcotics. He found drugs in abundant supply at meetings. Eventually, Buckley's wife intervened, enlisting a former neo-Nazi she found on the Internet to help de-radicalize her husband. He didn't confront the ideology as much as he confronted the more pressing matter of my addiction, Buckley says. I knew what I was involved in was effed up, crazy, made no sense, but it was a trauma loop. After Buckley left the Klan, he joined Parents for Peace. In one of his first cases, he flew to the West Texas oil fields to counsel a teenager with a growing interest in white supremacy. Recently, Buckley worked with a New Hampshire high school student who embraced far-right nationalist theories. He tries to maintain friendships with those he helps. As he's learned from his own experiences, recovery is a long-term process. I still find myself having political thoughts when I'll watch something on Fox, he says. I'll be like, effing liberals. Amy heard about Parents for Peace from one of the counselors she'd approached for help with Jack. The group's website features videos of Buckley and Mubin Sheikh, a former Taliban supporter who joined Parents for Peace after a stint as a government informant in Canada. 
Earlier this year, Jack seemed to be moving away from Islamic extremism on his own as he watched YouTube videos of the anti-Islam preacher David Wood. Then, in the spring, he again started pouring through the Quran and discussing Islam online. He fell off the wagon, Amy says. That's when I called. In her first sessions with Churchill, Amy recounted Jack's descent into radical Islam. For years, she said, she'd had hardly anyone to confide in. When the FBI raided her house, she was too embarrassed to ask her family for help. People understand porn, she explained, but they don't understand your kid is doing ISIS. It's very much misunderstood, Churchill replied. It's really a public health issue. It's the same as reaching out for a drink. If you focus on don't take that drink, you're battling with the coping mechanism. The best way to help Jack, she said, was to show him love and attention, and not to overreact when he spouted extremist propaganda. Nobody wins fighting with a coping mechanism, she said. An extremist will fight to the death for that. In the 1970s, new religious groups such as the Reverend Sun Myung Moon's Unification Church attracted young followers in the U.S., some of whom made drastic life changes that shocked their friends and relatives. The result was a moral panic. American parents spent tens of thousands of dollars on cult experts known as deprogrammers, who sometimes used unethical or illegal tactics to reverse what they called brainwashing. They're kidnapping people, they're isolating them, they're eliminating access to food and water, says Megan Goodwin, a religious studies scholar at Northeastern University. There's a lot of money in trying to help wealthy white families get their kids back. The deprogramming industry has transformed since the 1970s, as authorities have cracked down on the most dubious methods. Many practitioners now call themselves exit counselors or cult intervention specialists, Patrick Ryan, who's based in Philadelphia and describes his work as cult mediation, says he'd never use physical force to intervene in a family crisis. Sometimes, however, he engages in elaborate deceptions, gradually insinuating himself into the life of a cult member or designing a complex ruse to lure someone into a room for a stage-managed intervention. During Donald Trump's presidency, Ryan and other deprogrammers began using their techniques to fight right-wing extremism, as families recruited them to treat loved ones who'd adopted racist views or subscribed to QAnon conspiracy theories. Perhaps the best-known example of the pivot from cult deprogramming to right-wing de-radicalization is Stephen Hassan, a former Moon follower and the author of The Cult of Trump. Hassan charges $5,000 a day for his services, a shitload of money, he acknowledges. The clients that aren't a match for my approach are the single parents, he says. If they have no funds, that's not a match for me. A frequent guest on cable TV, Hassan frames his work as combating mind control, an interpretation of Trump's appeal that cult experts have often disputed. Hassan also expects clients to read his books. For-profit deprogrammers and groups such as Parents for Peace are helping fill a specifically American void. De-radicalization groups have been around in Europe since the 1990s, starting with an effort in Norway that offered therapy and job counseling to neo-Nazis who were attempting to disengage. No similar organizations found traction in the U.S. until the 2010s, when an ex-skinhead named Arno Michaelis helped establish Life After Hate, a coalition of former extremists dedicated to coaxing people away from far-right violence. Michaelis left Life After Hate in 2012 following a fundraising dispute 
and the group has recently been riven with internal battles that have spilled into court. But it remains, along with Parents for Peace, one of a handful of American groups that offer de-radicalization services free of charge. The work is delicate. The former extremists operate largely on instinct, and they can make mistakes. For years, Michaelis counseled an ex-Klan member who had become a fervent Trump supporter. He really just swapped the white race for Trump, Michaelis says. Trumpers are the good guys, and everybody else are the evil scum of the earth. The hate was every bit as intense. Last year, the relationship turned antagonistic. The ex-Klansman needled Michaelis about Trump until he got a reaction. Eventually, Michaelis lost control. I screamed at him. I told him he's an idiot. Trump's a piece of shit. I hope he loses the election, Michaelis says. Any influence I had on him all went completely out the window. Aware of the potential for damaging confrontations, Churchill urges families to take a gentle approach. In phone calls this summer, she warned Amy not to react angrily when Jack watched disturbing videos. A strong negative response, Churchill told her, might prompt him to dig in deeper and seek out more alarming content online. Instead, she said, Amy should ask Jack how the videos made him feel or other open-ended questions. The advice seemed to pay off. As the summer progressed, Jack appeared to lose interest in radical Islam, renouncing his old beliefs and watching more and more David Wood videos. But he was also developing a new fascination, the Confederacy. Parents for Peace often sees extremists swing from one form of radicalism to another. The ideology is very much of a superficial band-aid for whatever they're going through, Churchill says. Jack decorated his bedroom with Confederate memorabilia, including a bayonet that once belonged to his great-great-great-grandfather, who fought for the South in the Civil War. He also started wearing a baseball cap emblazoned with the Confederate flag, prompting complaints at church. And in an argument with one of his siblings in August, he used the phrase white power, alarming Amy. Later, she asked him not to wear his cap in public, and he pushed back aggressively. This is my history, he responded. This is my heritage. I'm almost more worried that I'll have to call again and enroll in a different side of Parents for Peace, Amy says. Still, she didn't think her son was becoming a white supremacist. Jack didn't express animus toward black people, and he seemed to understand that the flag could offend others. He'd never wear the cap around his trainer at the gym, who's biracial. Most of the time, his obsession with the Confederacy seemed to stem from a genuine interest in the history of Civil War battle flags. It was a classic conundrum. Skeptics of deprogramming and de-radicalization have long noted the difficulty of determining whether a troubling set of beliefs warrants intervention. What counts as extreme? asks Joe Ushinsky, a political scientist at the University of Miami who studies conspiracy theories. If we're talking extremism, extreme what? Extreme willingness to act on a violent impulse or something else? One evening in September, Jack agreed to meet over Zoom with Churchill, Buckley, and Sheikh, the former Taliban supporter. He gave them a tour of his bedroom, turning his iPad toward the collection of snakes and turtles housed in tanks along one wall. It turned out Buckley was also a snake enthusiast. He brought out a five-and-a-half-foot red-tailed boa and wrapped it around his neck. You seem like the type of dude, I could show up at your house, we're going to do country boy shit, and we're going to run out to the woods and we're going to wrangle snakes, Buckley said. I want to get to know you more. Sheikh asked Jack about his descent into radical Islam. Part of what drew him, Jack responded, were the videos of men hugging and kissing each other, the sense of brotherhood and camaraderie. 
He wanted to be part of that. Throughout Jack's childhood, he'd struggled to make friends and was sometimes bullied. In seventh grade, a group of boys put goods they'd stolen from an army supply shop in his backpack. There's a difference between a healthy brotherhood and an unhealthy brotherhood, Buckley said. Keep that in your mind, man. Jack paused. He seemed to be listening carefully. I will, he replied. By her own admission, Churchill is better at counseling than at fundraising. In 2020, Parents for Peace generated a little more than $289,000 in revenue, mostly from donations, with expenses totaling almost $213,000. It's such a messy issue, she says. Donors will donate much easier for the puppies and children with cancer because it makes them look good. In the long term, she hopes Parents for Peace can expand across the U.S., training local clinicians. But she's faced setbacks. In September, the Department of Homeland Security turned down the organization's application for $750,000 in grant funding. For now, Parents for Peace has only about 20 active cases, most of which involve white supremacy or QAnon. Over the summer, Buckley and Sheikh held a series of video meetings with Ty Garvin, an airplane mechanic in his mid-twenties who pleaded guilty to helping orchestrate the plot to kidnap Michigan Governor Gretchen Whitmer in 2020. Garbin's lawyers had reached out to the group. The aim was not to de-radicalize him, exactly. He'd already expressed remorse. Rather, Parents for Peace hoped to help him avoid falling back into extremism while in prison, after his sentence was handed down. On the calls, Buckley bonded with Garbin over their shared interest in military-style weapons— we talked about what his favorite type of rifle was, his favorite rounds, body armor, Buckley recalls. Then the conversation turned to weightier topics, ethics, duty, honor, loyalty. I'm going to do everything I can to make sure he stays healthy, Buckley says. The dude was super authentic. During a sentencing hearing in August, Garbin's legal team cited the meetings with Parents for Peace as evidence that his commitment to reform justified a lenient sentence. He ultimately got 75 months, well below the maximum penalty. Lawyers for the January 6 rioters have followed a similar playbook. Anna Morgan Lloyd, the first to be sentenced, told a judge she'd been reading books about black history and studying inequality in America. In the same way a drunk driver might attend Alcoholics Anonymous meetings to impress a judge, extremists facing criminal charges can invoke the de-radicalization process to avoid lengthy sentences. That could expose Parents for Peace and other groups to manipulation. Maybe they go to the AA meetings genuinely, says Jessica Stern, a Harvard senior fellow who's studied deradicalization efforts. Or maybe the lawyer might instruct them to do that. There's a lot of risk here. Stern is planning a formal evaluation of Parents for Peace, hoping to codify its techniques and track outcomes. For years, the group has lacked the resources to maintain reliable long-term data on the families who've sought its services. We'd like to make sure this person isn't a terrorist not just two weeks later, but two months later, ideally many years later, Stern says. With each new case, Parents for Peace is encountering complex family dynamics that lack clear solutions. Recently, the group has been coaching a mother whose college-age son spews anti-Semitic vitriol, dismissing mainstream news coverage as propaganda by the Jew York Times. The mother was anxious about introducing him to Buckley, she thought a meeting could help, but she wasn't sure how he'd react if he found out she was seeking help to address his extremism. Buckley was convinced the son needed therapy to address his underlying struggles with mental health, 
Mom needs to set some whole-ass ground rules, he told Churchill after a call with the woman in September. You've got to require him to go to therapy, and if he says he won't go to a therapist, then it's you have to get out. Many of these liberal families are afraid to set those boundaries, Churchill said. He'll hear it from you, Chris. Buckley shook his head. What am I going to do, make him move out, he asked. We're stuck in a mud hole right now. Parents for Peace has made more progress with Jack and Amy. At 19, Jack still lives with his parents, though he recently started a new job tending plants at a local greenhouse. He still keeps copies of the Koran on a shelf in his bedroom, and in one edition he's highlighted passages he interprets as violent. But he says he's firmly rejected radical Islam. When he started chatting with Islamic extremists online, he says, he was sure they knew what they were talking about. But they don't know what they're doing at all, he says. They're stuck in the 7th century. Recently, Jack has re-immersed himself in one of his earliest obsessions, venomous snakes. His contact information is posted on a registry of volunteers who've signed up to help capture snakes spotted in residential areas. On a Friday night in September, he got a Facebook message from a woman 30 minutes away who'd seen a rattlesnake in her backyard. Jack drove to the scene, where he used a long hook to pick up the snake. Afterward, he posed for a photograph next to the captive rattler. In the picture, he's wearing his Confederate baseball cap. The next day, Jack went into his family's garage to take another look at the snake, which he was storing in a plastic bin. He planned to release it in a remote area later that weekend. After gently removing the pink lid, he dropped onto his haunches and stared as the snake lay unmoving, curled up in the corner of the bin, the afternoon sunlight half-illuminating its gray and black skin. Amy stood over her son, watching him watch the snake. Sometimes I think I could just touch him, Jack said. That's what scares me, Amy replied, that you think that. Jack turned to her with a grin. But I wouldn't, he said. It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. Join Bloomberg in San Francisco or virtually on May 7th for The Future Investor, Data-Powered Transformations. This 2024 event series will examine how data is not only playing a pivotal role in investment decisions, but serves as a driving force behind the construction of innovative, investable enterprises. This series is proudly sponsored by Invesco QQQ. Register at BloombergLive.com slash FutureInvestor slash radio.